This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. That drumbeat sounded a few months ago as 10 bison walked, then trotted, then galloped onto a piece of Colorado prairie they now call home. This very special herd could someday help strengthen its entire species, but there's a problem. The animals are healthy, but they're descendants of a herd that's plagued by a deadly disease. Now, scientist Jennifer Barfield of Colorado State University is working to ensure these bison and future generations remain free of the disease forever so they can return to their ancient homelands. Jennifer, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, uh, this bison herd was born at a Department of Agriculture facility at CSU, and they've lived their early lives in large pens. Can you describe where they are now? Sure. So now they are making their home on the Soapstone Prairie Natural Area and the Red Mountain Open Space, which are two properties owned by the city of Fort Collins and Larimer County. And it's this, you know, expansive grassland with the Rocky Mountains to the west, kind of framing them there between that and the plains that continue on to the east. Just kind of rolling hills, golden grass. It's it's a beautiful spot. And, and there are a few more buffalo out there now than when you started? Absolutely. So we actually had another birth yesterday. So we now have 16 and six six young calves kind of bouncing around on the prairie out there. And just a quick question that, that listeners often ask. We're referring to these animals as bison, though people often call them buffalo. What's the difference here? Oh, that's a great question. I hear it a lot. And so, you know, in North America, we call our bison buffalo as well. So we use both words to talk about the same animal. Technically speaking, and the scientific term for our animal is bison, bison, bison. That's the scientific name. Bison, bison, bison. Um, okay. Yeah, very creative, right? <laughs> um, but the true buffalo live in um, Africa and in Asia. But the term buffalo here in North America was really a word that Native Americans adapted when they were learning to communicate with white settlers. And so that name has kind of stuck and taken on a cultural significance um, for Native Americans in North America. So we mentioned that these bison you work with are special, that they could help strengthen the entire species. How do they differ from other bison people may see in the West? So our bison out on the prairie, they um, their genetics go back to the Yellowstone herd. And the Yellowstone herd is really unique. They have um, a, a quite a high genetic diversity. And in the history of that herd, those animals have managed to never breed with cattle. And so that's a problem for some herds, not for the Yellowstone herd. And so what we're doing with ours, uh, our animals, is we're helping to bring those valuable genetics out of the park, create a new herd that could then be used to spread those genetics into other bison herds that may need them. Uh, But there's a fundamental issue I've read with those bison and Yellowstone. Isn't that right? That's right. And so the big problem for them is brucellosis. And um, it's a disease that they very likely originally got from cattle that were brought to the area, to North America. Um, But now it's found in the bison, also in the elk in Yellowstone National Park in the greater Yellowstone area. And so that's a problem because it then prevents some of the conservation tactics that you would normally use, such as translocation. Um, You know, we can't really do that because if you take those animals out of the park and put them somewhere else, they could bring that disease with them. So, So outside of Yellowstone, bison may not have this disease? Right. No, I mean, really, the only remaining reservoir for that disease is the greater Yellowstone area. So we're referring in the sense that you you have to deal with these animals that have this disease. What are you doing to essentially clear them of this disease before moving them, let's say, to where they are now? 
So, you know, we do get to bring some of those that have the disease down to Fort Collins. um, And with our partners at the USDA Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, we can bring them into a quarantine facility. Now, unfortunately, there's no cure for the disease. So it's not that we can bring positive animals here and cure them and get them back out on the prairie. But what we can do is use assisted reproductive technologies, um, which are basically science is a science that allows animals and people, in fact, to have healthy pregnancies and healthy babies. And we apply some of these um, embryo technologies to get embryos from these very genetically valuable animals. And then we can put those embryos into healthy bison and allow them to carry the pregnancy. Very much like, you know, a surrogate would carry a baby, a human baby for, say, a woman who couldn't carry her own child. And that sounds like a lot of things that, that of course, we're doing, dealing with humans. So, so your effort has to do with saving the gene pool, but making it uh, brucellosis-free. Is that, is that right? That's right. And I wanted Absolutely. to go back a little bit and talk about translocation. What, what is that and, and, and how prevalent is that working with animals from different areas? Yeah, so, you know, in some cases where um, an animal or a a species might be kind of reaching their maximum capacity in a particular area, if there are other suitable habitats, you may take them and move them to those habitats where they could reestablish themselves and, and, you know, they could continue to grow in numbers. And so, yeah, unfortunately for the Yellowstone bison, because of the disease, um, it's very difficult to do that. So in order to move them, you have to go through a quarantine process, which takes years and money and and can be very challenging to do. Now, is there something to be said about the fact that you may want to just leave these bison with this disease, that it's something that is naturally occurring? Why remove it from the species? Well, I think it has some real, you know, conservation benefits for the species as a whole, because when you have just, you know, these bison in Yellowstone and they have these really genetically um, valuable backgrounds, you know, getting those genetics out to other herds can really boost the genetic variability in those herds and really improve the health of the species as a whole. So, you know, yes, while we could potentially just leave them in Yellowstone National Park, we may find that other herds... Um, that could potentially benefit from those genetics don't get that infusion. And so so from that perspective, it could be really important. Well, let's take a break. I'm speaking with Jennifer Barfield of Colorado State University. She's using some fertility techniques on bison, so more can be bred and go back to the lands where more than 60 million of the animals once lived. Stay with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with CSU professor Jennifer Barfield. She's working with a herd of bison that's living on the prairie north of Fort Collins. So before the break, we talked about these bison and some reproductive science you've used to make sure that they're born without brucellosis and their descendants won't have it. Can you break down a little bit for a recap how you actually do that? Sure. So um, one of the techniques we can use is embryo transfer. And so what that involves is taking a female that um, may have the disease and allowing her to either breed with a male or we can also do artificial insemination. And then in the next seven days, before the embryo has made any kind of attachment to the mother, it's still kind of free-floating in the uterus, actually, we can go in and non-surgically remove that embryo and then put it into a healthy bison that can then give birth to that calf and nurture it um, until it's you know ready to be out on its own. And so in that way, we can produce a healthy offspring. 
Um, we can also take semen from bulls that have the disease and use a kit to clean that up. And it's actually very similar to a kit that's been hu- used in, in human infertility for men with HIV. And so it's really just a method of getting the sperm away from any bacteria or viruses that may cause disease in the offspring or in the mother that will be inseminated. So why is it important to put these animals at the soapstone area? Is it because it's so far away from, from potentially contaminated areas? Well, the prairie up there is actually a wonderfully intact short grass prairie, which is um, not necessarily easy to find these days. Hmm. But, it, you know, the bison have a historical um, relationship to this landscape, as well as Native Americans that used to live there. And, you know, if you go out and visit that site and you're standing there, it, it just feels right. It just feels like those bison should be there for a lot of reasons. Um, and so, you know, we were just really fortunate to be able to partner with the city and the county to put these animals back on this space again. And bison have a romantic history, as, as you, you've said, uh, you know, viewing them as part of the West, but they're also pretty controversial. Ranchers near Yellowstone worry constantly that they're going to wander outside the park and infect cattle with that disease. Could you and your colleagues possibly slip up like one little mistake and you'd be reintroducing the disease? <laughs> Well, you know, the protocols that we use and then after the animals are born, the checks that we go through, the the multiple tests for the disease, we really have layers of redundancy built into our system that allow us to basically catch it um, if it were to, say, slip through the cracks from just the embryo technologies. And we do constant monitoring of the animals as well. So they will be monitored every year. Um, And, you know, that's a really interesting point about the controversy. And what we did here in northern Colorado was we really worked with the ranching community in that area. And then also, you know, we asked for advice. We showed them all of our protocols, told them how we would be monitoring the animals, what we would do, be doing to ensure that they were disease free. And we asked for their input. And um, I think that helped us because they gave us some really valuable advice, but it also helped them to feel more comfortable and to fully understand what we were doing and how we were taking responsibility for this. And, and also some environmentalists worry for another reason. Because of the brucellosis, the Yellowstone herd is legally limited in size and the herd grows as calves are born. And at the end of the year, hundreds of bison have to be killed to meet that limit. And there aren't many wide open spaces in the country anymore. Are you breeding animals the world just doesn't have room for? <laughs> well, you know, I think there are still quite a few places where bison could roam. Um, for sure, we're never going to see, you know, the herds of tens of millions that that roamed here before it was settled by Europeans. But I think there are still a lot of spaces where bison can contribute to the ecosystem, um, can be a resource even for Native Americans to bring back some of that culture to them. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that we're not necessarily creating animals that don't have a place to go. We have a lot of interest in our animals and people who want them to start new herds or to augment the herds that they currently have. So is your intent then to grow the herd continually? Is there a limit that you're placing on this herd that's that's in northern Colorado? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we have a certain amount of land that's been given um, and set aside for the bison. So we will base our carrying capacity on the forage estimates for the lands that come out. And, you know, in the land that we've currently been given, we think we can get up to 50 animals. And and that includes a set of phase two pasture that will be built in a couple of years. And so, yes, there will be an upper limit for our herd. And that will fluctuate a little bit from year to year, um, just based on the conditions and and other things like that. So how much do do bison eat? (laughs) (laughs) 
That's a, that's a really great question. I mean, they eat, you know, quite a bit of grass every day. And we only have, well, now 16 animals, probably only 10 of those that are eating grass in a 1,000 acres. And so that's more than enough uh, forage for them in that space. And, you know, the way we intend to manage the, the prairie where they are is to actually um, stock it at a lower density because we have other wildlife that's moving through that area and we mm. want to keep a nice balance in that ecosystem. So uh, how did you get involved in working with bison? It seems kind of like a, a pretty unusual <laughs> calling. Yeah, you know, uh, it really started for me as um, a scientific interest kind of question. I was driving down I-25 one day and I saw the Terry Bison Ranch. And I had been learning about all of these techniques in cattle and domestic species. And, of course, bison is this really interesting species that sits on that fence. It's, you know, there's a commercial meat industry, but there's also the conservation side. And so I just started wondering, gosh, I wonder if anyone has tried to do these things in bison before. So I started looking into it. And there had been a little bit of research, but there was definitely more that could be done. And so... I um, managed to get a hold of some ovaries and some semen, and I took it to the lab, and I made embryos. And I was like, wow, oh, my gosh, this works. And and, and And you fell in love with it. And then I fell in love with it. And then as I got to work with the animals, I fell in love with the animals. I mean, it's just so hard not to. When you get to know them, they're all different. Uh, They have personalities. And you learn the dynamics of the herd. And it's just, it's really captivating. And then, you know, now as I learn more in depth about the history and the meaning for the Native American people and their their role in the ecosystem, it's this really beautiful story that it all centers around this charismatic animal. Jennifer. So it's really hard not to love them. <laughs> th- thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> Thank you very much. Jennifer Barfield is an assistant professor in the College of Veterinary Medicine and Bl- uh, Biomedical Sciences at Colorado State University. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Composer Carter Pan, who lives in Boulder, didn't win the Pulitzer Prize this year, but he came very close with this piece. That music for four saxophones recently earned Pan a nod from the Pulitzer Committee. They awarded the big prize to another composer, but mentioned Pan as a finalist, sort of an honorable mention in Pulitzer speak. He joins us now to talk about his piece, The Mechanics, and the rest of his music. Carter, welcome. Oh, Nathan, thank you. It's great to be here. The group that performed on that recording is a saxophone ensemble called the Capitol Quartet. Did they approach you and say, hey, we'd like you to write something for us? You know, it's funny. It was absolutely the flip of that. I approached them. I, w- I heard them in concert, and I had known a couple of the of the gentlemen who play in it for a few years. And when I heard them in a, a concert, I think it was 2012 uh, in Boulder, they came. They were on a tour. I sort of uh, I ran backstage <laughs> uh, in complete excitement and, and almost tackled them <laughs> in, <laughs> as they were sort of you know, exhaling from an incredible performance. And I, I said, you know, I've got to just let me write for you. I, I want to set something up. I've got to, I've got to do this. I'm just so excited. So, yeah. So what stood out to you about their sound? Well, the, the, you know, it's, they play, these four men play, uh, you know, their four saxophones on stage as if they're one sax, one large quadruple sax. And uh, it's a weird thing to think about, but string quartets uh, do that. Some other ensembles, piano tunes, they play, the the best of them play sort of with one heartbeat 
kind of going on uh, chamber music. And these gentlemen uh, are just that. They they move together, breathe, to, breathe together. They're so musical on the same sort of phrase. We call it the phrase length instead of wavelength. And, and, and this is exactly who they are. So they, they just pull you in at any of their concerts. And the other thing I should mention is that these guys play – they don't play uh they play i don't know if this makes sense but really high uh classical music and then really low and everything in between and so they they're kind of uh they love the sort of panoply of music and they love to just push it all off the stage well, let's hear a little more of this group playing the piece you wrote for the capitol quartet the pulitzer committee praised its quote rhythmic interplay of precision and messiness that is by turns bubbly pulsing dreamy and nostalgic i want to play a clip of the piece and see if you can hear some of that A mention as a Pulitzer finalist is a nice accolade. It's it's the first time that's happened for you. Did you feel like the mechanics was something special when you finished the piece? Oh yeah, the, it, it was. This well before any submissions were sent to Pulitzer, uh, you know, of this piece. I finished this, wrote this piece, and finished it in a in an incredibly short period of time for me. I'm not the quickest composer, but this was very fast. This. These six movements were written in a, within a month, and uh, because of who you know the inspiration for who I was writing, so it really just fueled itself to come out. And when it was out, I, I knew this was this was one of those kind of for me high mark pieces. Not not every piece you know a, a songwriter a composer writes, if you can think of it objectively, is is on that mark. And for me, this was definitely that. But this wasn't the first time you sent a piece to the Pulitzer Committee. I want to play the first piece you entered. It's called The Piano's Twelve Sides, written for solo piano. That's very different there. What stands out to you about this piece when you look at the music you've composed? Well, this actually, that piece we're listening to right now is is one of 12 movements of a larger work. The, the whole work was submitted. This, what we're hearing, is, uh, is kind of like just a paintbrush, like treating the pianist's hands like a paintbrush over the piano. There's not, you can't really hear a melody. You can't, it's, it's very impressionistic. And I think uh, what I liked about this piece or wanted to put into this 12 movement work was a, a 12 completely different sides of a, of a coin, if you will. And, and so I didn't want to sort of write the same thing or the same sounding piece 12 times over. And this piece you chose is perhaps the most sort of Debussy prelude-like of the works. And, um, and you wrote it over four or five years, is that right? That's right, yeah. These, that's right. These, these 12 pieces were compiled, I think I would say, uh, over about four years of writing a piece, uh, a single piece of the set in, sorry, I call it sort of in the cracks of a, 
of of my deadline schedule. And so when you know I have a window of a month or a window of two weeks or three months, I'll write uh, uh, one or two or three piano works. And I'm still doing that to this day. There'll be a new a, a new set on the horizon. Every now it's, and a, then. it's sort of a great way to fill time. <laughs> well, well, let's take a break. I'm speaking with Carter Pan, a Colorado composer who was a finalist for the 2016 Pulitzer Prize. You listen to Colorado Matters from CPR News. And you're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with composer Carter Pan, who was a finalist for the 2016 Pulitzer Prize in Music. Carter, you've taught music composition at the University of Colorado in Boulder since 2005. Uh, Do your students and the other teachers there treat you a little differently now that you're a Pulitzer finalist? (laughs) Well, I want to say maybe the the three or four days following the announcement, it it almost felt like I had won the award. That that was how (laughs) supportive it was around there. It was, you know, a a big sort of frenzy of excitement. And and, and, and I sort of had a running joke in the hallways at CU. I would say, yeah, thank you. I'd shake hands and say, this is what the loser looks like. This is, it it was sort of a a kind of tongue-in-cheek joke just to bring me down again <laughs> to, to reality. Um, no, it was fun, though. Incredibly supportive. But now the Pulitzer Prize, it's really important that when they mention someone as a finalist, though, isn't it? It's a pretty big deal. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, and they, they, I think that may alter every year. They may choose, uh, you know, one finalist, two finalists. I, I have no idea. But um, it came as a, an absolute shock uh, when, I, when I did find out in reality this, this happened. I want to talk about one of your orchestral pieces called Slalom. Uh, you grew up near Chicago, but you took some childhood ski trips to Steamboat Springs, and they helped inspire this piece. Let's hear a little bit of Slalom. definitely hear or feel the snowflakes hitting hitting your face. Uh, Carter, what about skiing made you say, I think this would translate well uh, to do a symphony orchestra? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. For all those years going skiing, uh, and I, I, I have to say, and I'm a little, uh, a little embarrassed to say, all the years I've been in Colorado, I have skied at Steamboat Springs and only that mountain. Uh, it's, it's kind of interesting. I keep going up there. But as a kid, I would, I would ski these, this hill with uh back then in the 80s uh, uh you know, cassette walkman if you remember those oh yes uh yeah and and i would pump uh you know some great great music both pop music but a lot of these huge classical pieces would come into my ears as i'm skiing maybe not the safest thing to do uh you know barreling down a mountain but that with a few uh, IMAX films that that I've seen, you know, uh, I think underwater to fly those 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 films that maybe some of us have seen, sort of planted the idea that it would be great to write a film score without a film, 
say, for skiing. Well, and you talked about skiing and about picturing the saxophonists, uh, as in the Capitol Quartet, as actual mechanics. Uh, do, do you try to write music that that's fun that plays a little bit with with the, with the norms of classical music? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, as as the years go on, you you learn about yourself and what and where you where your leanings are. So. I like actually when you say picturing those four guys, I was picturing them sort of dressed in these sort of greasy, you know, grease monkey outfits in a in a in an auto mechanic shop and, and it really does help to sort of uh fuel the 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 writing of the notes. If I if I have a visual and, and that's actually what that orchestra piece really was, the the beginning of writing this really visual sort of stimulating music. That's what the mechanics was. This 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 recent piece was just watching these guys in my head. In my brother's uh, mechanic, he has a, he has a taxi cab stand uh, in Chicago, but it also is a, a mechanic sort of auto shop. And I also pictured them. This is funny in in black and white or in sepia, the way you would uh, sort of see a photo from say the twenties or the thirties um, of guys like this. <laughs> How how big a difference is this Pulitzer mention going to make in your career? Is your phone ringing more since the announcement? <laughs> well, I, uh, that's a that's a good question. And no, I mean it's it's a um, I don't know. I it's I think it, at the end of the day, Nathan, this is an incredible accolade that I now can use the word in association with my name in sort of a print copy of a biography, you know, or a, a, a short little abstract that you would see in a program or, you know, like a concert program with a composer biography in it. And, and, and I think maybe it might manifest what it's done the most, I'll just say, has encouraged me to just keep, you know, pushing some stuff at Pulitzer. It's, it's kind of fun to think that I, there's nothing holding my submissions back anymore. It's kind of a nice little bit of encouragement. Um, and, and I must say this for a saxophone piece, uh, that, that's really, really kind of nice to see from Pulitzer. This is a, an award that I would never have expected would go to a a nod towards a sax piece. It's an opera orchestral, maybe large chamber award. So, so looking forward to a few years after, after this, what do you want to accomplish next with your music? Will you take a look at another unique instrument and, and, and try to compose for that? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I mean, that's a great question. I, I've never heard that spin, but I would, I would, I don't know about a unique instrument. Maybe a um, the thing that thrills me the most in in this sort of profession is the the interaction with great, great uh, musicians, and and be them, you know, be they classical pop, whatever. You know, Bella Fleck is one of the greatest musicians I think on the planet, but I don't know how you would categorize him. And on uh, um, on that note, we have to leave it. So let's hear a little more of the piece that brought you to our attention. This is from The Mechanics. Carter, thanks for speaking to us. Composer Carter Pan, who's a professor at the University of Colorado's College of Music, was a finalist for the 2016 Pulitzer Prize. You can hear more of his music at CPRnews.org. And we'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
And that's our show for this Monday. Thanks to everyone who gave to Colorado Public Radio this hour. If you've not yet done so, take two minutes right now and support Colorado Matters and all of the reporting you hear each and every day on Colorado Public Radio News. The number, once again, 1-800-496-1530 or head online to CPR.org. Take just two minutes and support public radio and everything you listen. I'm Nathan Neville. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.